Let's turn our attention to the Word of God. Not that we haven't already, but let's be specific now and go to John chapter 19, please. John chapter 19. And if you would find verse 28. If you're looking in the index in one of those um, pew Bibles, it's not 1st, 2nd or 3rd John, it's just John. So we're looking at John chapter 19. Verse 28. Just want to give people an opportunity to find it. Verse 28 reads, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Verse 30, if you have a red letter Bible, Jesus said, It is finished in the red. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. We continue today on the journey we started some months ago into the final sayings of the Saviour on the cross. And it's all preparatory to what we are going to do around the table in just a little while. And if you're visiting with us or you haven't been familiar with what we've been covering, there are seven words or statements made by the Lord Jesus in the final hours of his life on the cross. And every one of those statements, as we've already seen, has given us an insight into the character of that man on the cross. And I said last time that for three and a half years, the Lord Jesus taught and showed the world how to live. But in these final six hours, he showed us how to die. And what a death it was. And so, so far, just to give uh, a bit of an update or a summary of where we've already come through uh, in our studies thus far, we looked at the word of forgiveness. The Lord Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke 23 and verse 34. And then the word of salvation, where he says to the repentant thief, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise in Luke 23 and verse 43. And then thirdly, we looked at the word of tenderness, where the Lord Jesus turning to his disciple and to his mother says, Woman, behold your son. Behold your mother. John chapter 19, earlier in our text here. And then we had the word of isolation. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? In Matthew 27. And you'll recall that, no doubt. And then last time we were together, we looked at the portion just immediately above the text here, where the Lord Jesus said, I thirst. This was the word of suffering. Today, in our sixth of the seven sayings, we look at the word of victory. And the word of victory, it is finished. And to give you a preview of next month, Lord willing, it will be the word of satisfaction. Seventhly, when the Lord Jesus cries out with a loud voice and says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he dies. And so, as I said, we're going to look at the sixth saying of the Saviour on the cross as we consider this word of victory, and we've called the whole series the final words of a faithful Saviour, 
And this is part six. Heavenly Father, as we would look at this portion of Scripture today, uh, there is so much that we could say. There is so much that we could look at. And I pray that you would uh, cause me to know the best direction as we move through uh, these different aspects. I pray that you would give receptive ears and hearts, that we would come to appreciate all that was finished on our behalf. This incredible moment in history where the Son of God cried out from the cross, it is finished. Lord, may this prepare our hearts accordingly as we partake at the table designed to bring us back to this place of remembrance. So help us, I pray, to be concentrating, to understand, to have ears to hear what the Spirit would say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So as is often the case, I have a huge amount of things to share and I'm fairly sure that the Lord is just going to sift through that as we go along this morning. But the very first thing that I want you to note by way of the first point is what I have entitled grammatical significance. The grammatical significance. Now if you're anything like me, you may not be someone who loves grammar. Uh, I'm at the moment, as some of you know, going through uh, a university course doing Greek and it is very much at the moment about grammar and syntax and parsing and all those other words. And uh, although I'm appreciating what I'm learning, I must admit the actual work in grammar is very difficult. But I must say the whole of the last two weeks has prepared me for something I had never really seen in this text before. So I am praising the Lord for that. The Lord Jesus says it is finished. It's just one word in the Greek. Some of you know that. Some of you have heard me preach on this text before. And it is this word, tetelestai. And you're going to become very familiar with that Greek word before the end of this message. Tetelestai. This is a very, very interesting word. You say, what could be interesting about a Greek word that we don't know anything about? Let me just explain a few things as we look at this grammatical significance. In English, we have tenses, past present and future. Hopefully we all know that. In Greek it's the same, except there is a whole lot more to be learned as it relates to the tenses. This word tetelestai is in what we call the perfect tense. Now you might want to make a note of that, because something in the perfect tense means that it is an action that is completed, but the effects of that action continue into the present here's what this means it doesn't mean it was finished it is finished denotes an action that is done but the ramifications or results of which are still felt in the fullness of that concept we call this the perfect tense. Now, this morning my goal is not to, uh, to bore you down with a whole bunch of Greek grammar whatsoever, but this gives some real important insight into what is being said here. It isn't, it was finished. It isn't, it is finishing. It isn't, it will be finished. It is, it is finished. In other words, the completed action means that the total sufficiency of that deed in that perfect tense 
is complete, it's done, it's finished. But the results of that action are still felt in the existence today. And this will form a huge part of what we're going to look at. Furthermore, just to confuse you further, all right, again, not to bore you down with this, but all of these have really important points. This word, this one word to telestai, is in what we call the indicative mood. Now, that simply means that it's a statement of fact. It's not a question. It's not something that's open for uh, theorizing. Uh, It's not hypothetical. This is a statement of fact. The Lord Jesus was not saying, is it finished? He was saying, it is finished. Okay. One more little grammatical uh, important note here. It's in what we call the passive voice. And I need us to understand this here this morning. This is crucial. The passive voice means that the subject, which is the Lord Jesus in this, is being acted upon. He is not active. He is being acted upon. So when he says it is finished, it is being finished to him. You say, why is that crucial? Well, what it means is that someone other than Jesus is acting upon him. You say, why is that crucial? Well, theologically, in just a moment, you're going to find out why it is absolutely essential. We understand that it is finished is a fact. It's an imperative, uh, not an imperative, it's an indicative, it's clear. And it is being acted upon by someone else in him. Or he's the recipient of something here. The grammatical significance. Now, I hope all of that will make sense in just a few minutes. If your head is spinning right now, that's okay for just a couple of minutes. That's the grammatical significance. Secondly, that would have to be the quickest point in history just then. Secondly, I want you to note from the grammatical significance, now we move into the theological significance. And this one won't be quite as short. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, to Telestai, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the, the, the spirit. In understanding the significance theologically of this word, I need to introduce you to some key terms that relate to salvation. Now, please, I need you to understand this this morning, church. What I'm about to share with you is not to be intellectual assent. It's not to be just jargon, big words for the sake of big words or anything like that. It is because these terms are precious and expose incredible meaning, and they're found in the pages of our Bibles. So we need to understand them. So the very first word that I want you to note as part of this matter of theological significance is the word propitiation. Propitiation. And that word appears in our Bible in the English. And I'm very glad the translators have left it in there because it has incredible meaning. In fact, I would suggest to you, this word propitiation is one of the most precious words in the English language. And I want to explain it to you. It's virtually unknown in the world and sadly today in the church. It's derived from a Latin word which simply means to appease. That's what it means in its original form from Latin when it morphed into English. It means to appease. It is the act of turning away wrath by means of an offering. So in the olden days, outside of our theology, people would come to their gods with a gift 
or some kind of, even their children sometimes, we read about that, and they would bring them and they would literally lay them on an altar. They would burn them, sadly, in history. And that was to propitiate, to appease the wrath of the gods. That's the concept. Now, you don't need to know, you don't need to remember that word necessarily, but you must understand the truth surrounding this word because it's essential for salvation. If we don't get this, we miss most of the point. Now, some of us today, some people would have us believe that God does not operate with divine wrath. They would have us talk about his love, and we ought to. They would have us talk about his grace. They'd have us talk about his mercy and all the the positive, from our perspective, attributes of God. But many would say, please don't talk to me about God being angry or the wrath of God. That can't be a part of God. Well, that means you've compartmentalized the God that you have made up in your own imagination. Because I need you, if you would, quickly to turn to Romans chapter 5. I want to illustrate this truth about the fact that we serve a wrath-filled God. And I want to explain that. Romans chapter 5. Very familiar portion of Scripture. And beginning in verse 6, you read the rest of the context when you get the chance. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 6, the Apostle Paul says, For a while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And we say, praise the Lord. He died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9, since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now we now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? And we could go on because there's an incredible portion just to follow from that, that passage. But in that verse, the salvation that Christ provides is from the wrath of God. Now, let me say this this morning. If the wrath of God is a fallacy, then the death of Christ is in vain. Because the portion says he Christ died to save us from the wrath of God. Now, I hope every preacher would admit this reality that I'm about to admit. I don't fully understand how this all operates. And I am the first to admit it. But here is what I do know from the pages of Scripture. One of the most mysterious and majestic truths in all of Scripture is this. God saved us from himself. The most mysterious and majestic truth in Scripture is that God saved us from God. That does not logically make any sense. I can't fathom that. The wrath of God the Father was satisfied in the death of God the Son. The righteous demands of justice were entirely appeased by the pouring out of Christ's soul as an offering before the Father. That is a majestic and yet mysterious In fact, it was the Apostle John who wrote in chapter 4 and verse 10 of his first epistle, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, because we didn't. 
but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction, the appeasement for our sins. As we consider this matter of propitiation and this word to telestai, it is finished. We have to ask this question because I don't want to just fill your head with theological terms. What is the significance then of Christ's propitiation? What does that mean? Why is that relevant to the whole thing? Well, there's a few things you just need to note here that I'm just going to quickly tell you. God is holy. Now, if we understood his holiness, we would all be laying prostrate on the floor, unable to think of anybody else. We would be so overwhelmed by his character that we literally wouldn't be able to pick ourselves up off the floor. If God entered in the fullness of his character today and we were literally as we are, we would be extinguished on the spot. So glorious, so magnificent is his character. So much so that Moses says to God, show me your glory. And God puts him in the cleft of the rock back then and God moves past. And his afterglow, the back of God goes past him in whatever form that was. And what happened when Moses came down from the mount? Remember that time when he was up there with God? He was shining. It was a reflection of the afterglow of God. If you and I could see the full character and glory of God in an instant, we would be gone. That's how glorious and majestic and holy this God is. Now, if we're honest, none of us in this room really understand that. We don't. We try to. We want to. We hopefully have a desire to. But not until the fullness of glory takes place when we see him as he really is. And even then, I'm not sure that we will see the fullness of his character. I'm not sure that we can bear that. I don't know how that's going to work. But this I know. This is a holy God. And if he is a holy God, which he is, he is offended more than you can even imagine by sin. It is the antithesis of his very nature. Sin and God do not work cohesively on any level. Sin is inconsistent with God's perfections and therefore cannot be overlooked. See, the problem today is religion is saying, God will pat you on the back and it'll be okay on judgment day. You don't understand God then. God cannot do that. You say, is is everything possible with God? No, it's not. Hang on, I thought God could do anything. God can do anything that relates to his own character, but God cannot overlook sin. He never has and he never will. God, his very character and his nature cannot overlook sin. So it will not be okay on judgment day. For those who are outside of Jesus Christ, it will not be okay. But we learn something about this person, Jesus, in this matter of propitiation. If the appeasement of God's wrath, if the satisfaction of God's wrath was met in the person of Jesus Christ, that tells us about the character of Jesus Christ. This is the sinless, perfect Son of God. None other could ever appease the wrath of God. You can't. There is nothing that you and I can do. There is no human in history that can stand before a righteous God and say, I will turn your wrath away against sin because of my own righteousness. That is an impossibility. That's why we are dealing here with God the Son, 
Nobody else could take that place. It gives us an insight into who this perfect sacrifice is. Another thing we note here is that God's unbending justice was fully satisfied toward the believing sinner by means of Christ. Here's what I mean. You and I have only hope in this world if Jesus Christ truly is able and has appeased the wrath of God. If he has not, we have no hope. If he is not satisfactory, if there is one iota out of place in the character of Jesus Christ, we are hopeless and our faith is in vain. We have absolutely nothing. This is just a gathering if Jesus Christ is not the satisfactory substitute. But you know something else, and again, we don't have time to turn here. In Romans chapter 3, just maybe take note of these verses. Romans chapter 3, 21 to 26. In that passage, you remember, in there we have, for all of sin and come short of the glory of God. We know that verse so well. But one verse you may not know so well is that the Bible says, just a couple of verses later, that God is both the just and the justifier. You know what that means? That means that in God, somehow, he is both just and he is able to declare someone righteous. Now, either this reality is a lie by the Apostle Paul, or we have God the Father saying, I am the just one, and God the Son saying, I am the one who will bring about justification. I will justify. I will declare righteous through me. God says, I am doing both. Now, that's inconsistent unless he has the perfect sacrifice and substitute in our place, which we call the propitiation. One other doctrine that I know, I must say this every single week, so I'm not going to say it too long, but I just got to remind you, this doctrine of double imputation, this doctrine that teaches in the scripture that my sin is, is accredited to Christ. That should blow us away. My sin is given to his account and his righteousness, the righteousness of God himself is given to me that before the Father I can stand in Christ's righteousness. If, again, there is one aspect of Christ's righteousness that is not wholly righteous, then we have nothing we're with to stand. This matter of double imputation is essential to understanding propitiation. God is satisfied in the death of his son for our sin and for all those who would believe. It's a remarkable thought. I truly could spend hours on that some more. But I need to move on to the second one. And there are only two. I've only put two theological significant truths. There's thousands, but I've only brought us two this morning. The second one is one that I've not spoken of much that I need to do more so. And it is called efficacy. Efficacy. Say that fast a few times. It's really hard. Efficacy. This is another word that has nearly virtually been removed from our vocabulary as Christians. Oh, but I'm on a mission to bring it back. I know it's an archaic word. I know it's a, uh, a King James word. But this word is absolutely packed with truth. And it comes directly from this Greek word in essence to telestai. It is finished. And I want to show you how. 
So in its natural meaning, aside from the theological context, efficacy means the power to produce a desired result or effect. It came into existence in the 1520s from another Latin word. The Latin, we've got a lot of Latin words here that have come to mean theological terms. It means powerful. It means effectual. It means efficient. So you get the picture? This word efficacy. But in theology, efficacy speaks of Christ's sacrifice being efficient or powerful to bring about salvation. In other words... The blood of Christ that was not spilt but shed intentionally for sinners is the means of our reconciliation between God and man. It means that our cleansing is possible. It means that sin is expiated. It means that we have a union with God in every sense. It simply means salvation by the blood of this lamb. See, efficacy and sufficiency are words that are very closely aligned. Now, probably the best book in the New Testament to read as it relates to this matter of efficacy is the book of Hebrews. And I would like you to turn very quickly, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 10. I'm not going to apologize for having you turn. I'm not going to apologize for the the, the level that we're looking at here because this is absolutely core to our understanding of the gospel and preparation for our time around the table. Hebrews chapter 10. And again, I cannot pull a verse out of context here. It's just not going to make sense. So we're going to begin in verse 1 and read the first 14 verses. Hebrews chapter 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Now, the Jews at this point reading this letter would be furious because they are about to find out in this portion of Scripture that what they do is temporary. Now, they knew that. But they're not prepared to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ as the permanent sacrifice. Verse 2, otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, this is the old covenant, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first. In order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sacrificed through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Did I read that wrong? I'm sorry, let me say that again. Jessica's giving me a nod here. And by that will we have been sanctified. That's better, isn't it, than being sacrificed? At least we don't have to be sacrificed. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for 
all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This passage, along with much of the book of Hebrews, is essential to understanding the sufficiency, the permanency, and the efficacy of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It is once for all. Now you say, what's the point here? What's so wonderful about this perfect tense of it is finished is that the deed is done, but the effect continues constantly so that his blood today avails as much as it did when it was shed on the cross of Calvary. What does that mean for us then? What's the ramifications of that? That if you have been saved by the blood of the Lamb, if you've trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ in his atonement, then that you are as secure today as you ever were since salvation. You cannot be any less secure than you are today if you are truly his, because the blood continues to avail. This efficacy is the power and the consistency of this sacrifice. No longer do we bring a bull or a goat in here. No longer does the priest, if I were in the Old Testament, I would be the priest and I would be shedding its blood and we would be sprinkled by that blood and we would do that day after day, week after week, year after year. Christ did it once for all. Behold, the Lamb of God, which does not cover the sin, it takes away the sin of the world. This is the efficacy. Now I need to tell you, at the risk of causing a little bit of offence, this is one of those areas where most religions and sects and cults differ. They differ in a lot of things, but they differ majorly here. You see, again, uh, I'm, not, I'm not wanting to have us look down upon others. I'm wanting us to be informed that we might tell them the truth of the gospel. If you go up the road today, you will take part in a, a little mass service. You will take a wafer and it will mystically, by the hands of that priest, turn into the literal body and blood of Christ. Or so they say. Now, the great problem with that is that Hebrews tells us he died once. He doesn't have to die again. We don't need his body and blood once again to cleanse us. It's done. It's finished. To tell us die. It is finished. And so the great problem then is that people begin to believe in the mass and the mystical transition that takes place rather than the finished work of Jesus Christ. May I say this to us without being offensive? I hope. Nobody who believes in the mass and its work in their life can be saved. Now, I'm not saying that everybody who goes to Catholic Church is not saved. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying if you are trusting in the transubstantiation, the continuation, you cannot be saved because it is once for all. You come and you say, save me, O God, I have no hope within. And the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. Never to be done again, ever, once for all. I uh, did some research last night on some other sects and cults and religions and one that I came across uh, which I was already aware of but was reminded as I went on to uh, uh, the Watchtower organisation 
to read some things. And from their own lips, the Jehovah's Witnesses tell us that, yes, you must believe that Jesus is Christ to be saved and believe in his death. However, I found just a few paragraphs later that there were some additions that needed to take place for this to be a reality. And that salvation is sustained by the good works done. Any moral failure, particularly in the areas of debauchery, results in a loss of salvation. In fact, they go so far, and I was devastated to read this. I mean, really hurt in my heart uh, to read the reality that your salvation is lost if you smoke. That your salvation is lost if you take part in a blood transfusion. If you're involved in boxing. If you participate in a raffle. If you vote or perform military activity, your salvation is at once lost and must be regained by no longer doing those things. And then, saddest of all, those things are not only sad, but wrong. And I quote, Only members of the Watchtower Association are truly saved. Quote, I didn't make that up. That is off the site. I have the website here of the Watchtower Association. We are dealing here with someone who says, or a group that says, Jesus is the way, but you must do this, 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 this. Folks, that's not salvation. That's legalism. That's adding to the gospel that that which Jesus did not say. Therefore, you cannot be saved. It is Jesus plus and minus nothing. It is the propitiatory work and his efficacy that brings about our redemption. We must understand this because we live in a day where another group called the Mormons deny that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, a lot of these things look good on the external. And again, not seeking to bash them publicly. I want us to be equipped that we might preach the gospel to them, the undiluted gospel, the real deal, what it is, so that they might know the truth. And then we have Islam that denies the efficacy of Christ's atoning work. Because they view Jesus as nothing more than a prophet. And furthermore, I didn't know this. Again, from their sight, it was Judas who was crucified and not Jesus. That's a heinous crime against the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is a heinous crime. And we need to stand against that. If the sacrifice of Christ, church, if the sacrifice of Christ is in any way insufficient, if it is deficient in any way, if it is ineffective in any way, then we are all damned and doomed. Because our faith is placed entirely in that work. Entirely. Not partially, not mostly. Entirely. Now, I want to just make a quick comment here that's really important. I am not saying that works do not accompany salvation. I am not saying that a Christian ought not to live in the realm of good works. Not at all. In fact, we're saved to do good works, Ephesians 2.10. But what I'm saying is that no flesh is justified by the works of the flesh. Romans 8. Nobody in this room has ever been saved by keeping the law. Nobody in this room has ever been saved by trying hard. It is by grace, through faith, in Christ, alone, alone. When Jesus proclaimed the completion of salvation, he left nothing undone. Nothing. 
And we know that he was yet to be raised from the dead in connection with this particular portion of Scripture. But that's all, that's all connected into this. It is finished. The Lord Jesus knew that he was going to uh, lay down his life and come back up from the dead three days later. He knew that. It is finished in the work of Jesus Christ. And he saves to the uttermost. Hebrews 7, I love this passage. Verse 25 says, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, Jesus Christ, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Notice what he is. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Wow. What a gospel. You know what I love about this gospel? You and I, we can't do it. This stops man trying because every other religion in every other place says, if you will work hard enough, if you will try harder, if you will self-discipline enough, you can get there. The answer is you cannot ever get there unless you go by means of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ can't get there it's always good when you have seven pages and you're on the first one i'm going to give you one more point and maybe this afternoon we'll continue through this i'm not sure i think we've covered so much that is significant for us this morning but this matter of theological significance let me just give you the historical significance this will only take a moment point number three and this was an exciting thing for me and Something I hadn't seen before. I've preached on this text many, many times uh, throughout the years. It's one of my favourites because I just love all that is contained within it. But in my research of this, again, Greek word tetelestai, I found some historical usages in historical papers that I had never seen before. And it just excited my heart. So let me hopefully provide a little bit of excitement in this for you as well, if you're not already excited. The first thing I found is that this word, to telestai, it is finished, was used by the artist. Historical documents suggest that this word was used when an artist had finished the final strokes on the tapestry. And he would look on his work with approval and proclaim, to telestai. Now, that's something I will never do because I can't do art at all. But in this day, they would look and they would say, I've done it, I stand back. Uh, apparently, this is what artists do. They stand back, they look at it from different angles, and they would say in this day, to telestai finished now it's not going to take you very long to work out where we're headed with all of these our saviour in, in completing all the redemptive strokes on the tapestry of grace says it's finished it's finished the tapestry of grace is complete all of the strokes of redemption have been done it's done it's done hallelujah for Jesus Christ the grace artist. But then I noted, secondly, it was a word that was associated with servitude, the servant. Having been assigned the tasks of the master or their Lord, they would go and faithfully and fervently, dutifully obey at times. And when they had finished that mission that they'd been sent on, they would come back to their master and they would say, to Telestai, it is finished. Similarly, 
the suffering servant, met all the requirements of his heavenly father and could say with absolute confidence, my God, to tell us I've completed it as the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53. I've done the job you set out. I have completed your will, like he said in John chapter 17. My desire is to do your will, O my God. And he did it to the nth degree, completed everything and was able to come back to his heavenly father and say, it's finished. It just gets better. Just hang on to your seats. The third one I noted in history was the judge, judicially. When conferring a sentence or a ruling, the judge would say, justice has been served. And in that context, funnily enough, he would use this one word that you're all going to know so well, to telestai. Justice, it's finished. It has been completed in the realm of justice. Now, we've spent a long time on that already this morning. When Jesus said to Telestai, it could be translated, justice has been served. Not, not for us. I mean, yes, for us by derivation, but the fact that justice has been done, that sin has been destroyed in the body of Jesus Christ's flesh. Justice has been served. The righteous wrath of God appeased. Wow. And then we come fourthly to the merchant The merchant, perhaps, would be a seller of cloth or could be someone who goes around with vessels of clay and he would go and he would sell and he would bring his cartload of things. And when a transaction was made, there was an imprint on a bill which was stamped with the word tetelestai. And in this context, it meant paid in full. There's no debt left over. You don't have to... Bring back anything. There's nothing that is outstanding here. Stamped. It's done. That's your document. That's your receipt of purchase in today's language. And you know what that means. Isn't this just a wonderful picture of Christ's sacrifice? The great debt of sin has left us bankrupt. And along comes the Lord Jesus Christ. And the stamp of his precious blood is, it's paid in full to Telestai. And then the last one, the fifth that I noted in history, there were actually others, but these were the the ones that uh, had such a clear gospel association. The fifth one was the soldier. In the heat of the battle, the soldier, in gaining the victory over the one to whom he was warring or with whom he was warring, would cry to Telestai, which in this context meant you are finished. It was the victor's cry. It was the battle cry. It was the triumphant cry. This is in essence what happened on Mount Calvary when the Lord Jesus there, before he gave up the ghost, as the Bible says, to Telestai. Here we have the victor of our faith. The victor, the the captain of our salvation, Hebrews chapter 12 tells us, this is the one. And he cries, It's finished. It's finished. But in essence, we could also say, theologically correct, Satan, sin, death, hell, you are finished. You are finished. And if we had more time, I'd tell you more about those individual things. 
This word needs to be a word we cling to. Because if it is finished, if it really is, if Jesus really has finished all that relates to our salvation, then we cling on to that for dear life because that is everything, is it not? That, that is the, the, the whole summation of the gospel in his cry. I've done it. Heavenly Father, I've done it. And you know what's really interesting? Sometimes we get this the wrong way around. This was not primarily for you and I. Now, we are, we are the beneficiaries of this incredible gospel, but primarily it is finished was for the Heavenly Father. It was always for the will of God the Father. That's what the Lord Jesus' life was all about. But we in that become heirs with the Lord Jesus before the Father. What an incredible thought. And we would look, if we had more time, at the scriptural significance. And there's only about seven or eight subpoints there. And then we'd look at the personal significance. So let me close by saying just a couple of things. The grammar, the theology, and the history of this statement, does it have any personal significance, church? I hope it does. I hope this morning that your heart is warmed again and reminded, renewed in the reality of this truth. I wonder, can you see salvation's victor as he writhes upon the cross in agony of spirit under the full weight of divine justice and immeasurable suffering for you? Can you see that? Someone said, this then is the great choice which is set before you in this life. Sin would murder you. Christ would save you. You are not to fear your sins as though they were too mighty for you, seeing that Christ has conquered them on your behalf. Wow. But let me just uh, say in closing that if you are here this morning and you do not believe that it is all finished in Christ, then, dear friend, with all the love that I can muster, you are finished. Outside of Jesus Christ, no hope exists. You have nothing wherewith to trust, to depend. John Newton wrote this incredible poem. It's a song that some of us know and have even sung in the church before. He says, In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, till a new object struck my sight. And stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree. In agonies and blood. He fixed his languid eyes on me. As near his cross I stood. Sure never till my latest breath shall I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death. Though not a word he spoke. A second look he gave which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for your ransom paid. I die that thou mightst live. Thus while his death my sin displays in all its blackest hue. Such is the mystery of grace. It seals my pardon too. It is finished. It is finished. That's why we can read Romans 8. There is now no condemnation. 
to those who are in Christ Jesus, it is finished. I'm going to close in prayer and then I'm going to have us break off into some groups for just a few moments to discuss just a few things about this topic and then we'll uh, share in communion. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for the final words that we read of in scripture of our Savior on the cross. And uh, what a world of truth is found in each of those statements. And perhaps above them all, perhaps, this one word which we've looked at today, it is finished. Lord, I pray that you would cause the truth of that reality in its fullest sense to take root in our heart that this afternoon, not just while we're here, but perhaps while, when we go home, that the thought of our Savior completing in totality salvation's work, appeasing the wrath of God, and the reality of the efficacy of His blood, it is efficient for us still today, for the sin that we have not yet committed. Oh Lord, what incredible thoughts. And so as we gather around the table in a few moments, as we partake, let us be mindful of these truths. Perhaps, Lord, you would open the heart of someone here today who doesn't really understand the gospel and show them these truths that they might for the first time believe and know and understand the meaning of sins forgiven and a relationship with God the Father, who once was filled with wrath, but in Christ, uh, Lord, is gracious and loving and kind and benevolent and welcomes us as children. Thank you for this time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.